I'm going to be like this guy out of both ears. Right, here we go. Welcome to the Jax Jones and Martin Warner Show. Today's show is called Space, a journey through the universe in search for meaningful answers with Professor Brian Cox. Professor Brian Cox is often called the poster boy of particle physics and is the professor of it at Manchester University. He is one of the leading voices in science and specifically space. Today, with TV shows, podcasts and documentaries making science accessible to millions, he's best known for his films on space. He's the Royal Society Professor for Public Engagement in Science and is currently working on the Atlas experiment at the Large Hadron Collider. More on that later in the show. In a past life, he was the keyboard player in the British rock band D-Ream, who made the charts with Things Could Only Get Better in the spring of 1993. Hey Jax, are you ready? Yeah. Let's do this. Dude, it's your birthday today. Happy birthday, Martin. Thank you very much. I'm not counting. I mean, I still think I'm 30, <laughs> but you know, thank you very much. And you know what? Do you like your birthday? Um, Yeah. No, of course. I mean, I don't get presents anymore. I just buy them myself. In fact, I'm looking at a ninja blender that I bought so I can do my own superfood <laughs> smoothies, which I'm really looking forward to. Oh, my God. That sounds like it's my birthday as well, because if we get out of the ritual of McDonald's being the closing <laughs> meal after recording each podcast and it's some healthier options via the ninja blender, I'm over the moon. you have to put that to the world? <laughs> and let me tell you this. Space is just one of those incredible subjects i think we're gonna have a great show professor brian cox is just awesome i can't think of a better guest to talk about space with and there is something else i want to share and that's that you know my birthday is my birthday but it's also the day that i buried my father so it's a bit of a somber day but he loved space and i just to think that i'm doing this on my birthday talking about a subject that we both loved and i'm doing it with you and with brian cox this is going to be awesome philosophical scientific and maybe I'll get to understand when I'm going to get a snow speeder because if I don't get something out of Star Wars, well, don't know. Mate, um, it sounds like an amazing way to uh, think about your dad today and then we can make, find out some good information. I know you want to find out about Star Wars bits. I mean, I know we're going to be talking about black holes, champagne supernovas, where did we come from? How did the Earth start? Are there others out there? The event horizon, the <laughs> list goes on. Are planets Dude, really planets? You're truly unique. There is no one else like you. Let me just tell you now. Even if we walk into Bob the alien, he is they're never going to meet up with you. <laughs> Look, I, I don't know if there's intelligent life out there. I guess we're going to discover that. But I do know that there's plenty of intelligent life on this planet. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about why that is so special. Let's do it, man. Can I kick off and start the question? Um... And the, the question that I'd like to start with is, you know, is the universe eternal? Let me, first of all, perhaps, Brian, you'd like to define why that's important as a question. It's, it's a good question. And the very short answer is we don't know. That's a surprising thing to say, though, because what we do know is that 13.8 billion years ago, the universe was very, very different indeed to the universe that we see today. So today we see this universe full of stars and planets and galaxies, complex structures. What we know is that as you wind time backwards and you go back 13.8 billion years, there were no stars, no planets, no galaxies. The universe was very hot and very dense. And we call that moment, if you like, in the history of the universe, the Big Bang. 
And it's right. always been synonymous with the origin of the universe, I think, in most people's minds. And and indeed, that's that's the way that... that... So hold on, was it a state, the Big Bang? It wasn't like a moment. It was you're saying it was a state. Well, that's it. That's the the key point. So so we we used to think that uh, I should if I rewind a bit. The framework that we use is Einstein's theory of general relativity. It's published in 1915. That theory strongly suggests that the universe is not um, stable in the sense that it should be expanding or contracting. And Einstein actually resisted that. So the theory is really strongly suggesting that space itself should be stretching or shrinking depending on how much stuff is in it. And most people at the time, I think, Einstein included, thought that the universe should be eternal because it just feels better. You know, you don't have to deal with thorny issues about a moment of creation or the origin or what caused the universe to come into existence, whatever right, you want to say. Right. Is that not a cop-out? Yeah. Well, many people thought, well, it's a good question, isn't it? So we'll we'll get to that. So mo <laughs> I think most people kind of thought it was eternal. Um, although, obviously, the, then you have various religions with creation myths and so on. But Einstein's theory strongly suggests that it should be changing. Then the observations in the 1920s by people like Edwin Hubble showed that the universe is indeed stretching, right? The fabric of the universe itself is stretching. The universe is expanding. That caused people like Georges Lemaitre, who was one of the founding sort of sure. founders of cosmology. He was a very interesting man, actually, a Belgian priest as well as a physicist and a, a mathematician. Cool. Caused him to say that it seems the universe had a day without a yesterday. Because if you just imagine if the universe is expanding today, then that means yesterday everything was closer together and you can rewind time until everything's on top of each other. And we call that the Big Bang. So that's right. kind of what you learn in school, right? And that's the, the basic sort of picture we have of cosmology. But whether or not that time when the universe was hot and dense is indeed a day without a yesterday, if that's a first moment, or whether the universe existed in some other form before that, and indeed whether that other form goes into the infinite past, is just not known. Um, I should say we strongly suspect the universe was in existence before it got hot and dense. And that, that's a theory called inflation, which mm -hmm. is essentially sure. the idea that the universe was empty and cold pretty much before the hot Big Bang and expanding very rapidly indeed. And that expansion drew to a close. All the energy driving that expansion was kind of dumped into space, which heated it up and made the particles out of which we're made. But when that began... Or if that began, honestly, we don't know. I, I, I struggle as a, as a, I guess, with my limited human brain to, to take on the idea of infinity. Like what you're saying is that it's always been there. That just doesn't work for me. Do you know what I mean? Well, <laughs> I don't know. Firstly, I don't know whether it's always yeah. been there, but nobody does. Yeah. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, the universe having an infinite future, which we think, again, it probably may well have, um, at the, that that doesn't seem to bother us as much. I don't know whether it bothers you as much. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of. It just leaves me. The the emotion is. I'm more hopeful. It's like, okay, cool. That that's fine. And then where's not knowing where I be where I began or, uh, you know, I'm speaking on the behalf of the whole of the human race. It's a slightly less comfortable. I'm like, oh, okay. So what? I guess you're looking for meaning, right? Like, why are we here? Do you know what I mean? Like, how did we get here? I think that's a very important. Um, point actually if you, you think about that question what, what does it mean to be human it doesn't sound like a scientific question 
But in fact, what I would argue is that science provides a, the, the words are necessary but not sufficient um, framework. In, in other words, if we're going to approach that question, it is necessary to know that there are two trillion galaxies in the observable universe. The universe is at least 13.8 billion years old. Uh, the Earth formed four and a half billion years ago. Uh, there are 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. All those things are necessary to, to, to try and answer that question, but they're not enough on their own. And I think that's it's a really important part about points about the way that science fits in to culture and to mm. our culture and our civilization because you can't address deep questions without it mm. but that's not to say that it will answer all your deep questions i think that's a question of relevance mm. is that our place on earth albeit time-based or at least we think it's to physically time-based um, you know it, maybe our, our you know maybe our soul goes somewhere or whatever but we we're concerned about what we don't know in as much that it might affect what we currently have today whereas if we were to wind forward a thousand years i think most people are thinking well it doesn't really matter because it's not as relevant because i'm not going to be participating in that that journey do you think because you know legacy is something that that many people feel they want to leave they want sure. to leave something for future generations and you see it now i mean you know in serious issues such as climate there's a it's an interesting point you make that i think some people feel that because it doesn't appear to be a problem very imminently although actually that's changed in the last it's few years it is for sure becoming, yeah becoming quite obvious now but if you go back 10 years i think people felt if you've got predictions saying in a hundred years time there are going to be problems and i think you're right some people just switch off at that point and here we're talking about well tens of billions hundreds of billions of years in the future we all have some form of legacy that we care about but something that's going to affect you know it's going to be around in a hundred years let alone a thousand years it's almost out of grasp whereas right now we we stand on a ground we use this concept called called time and yet we don't really know why we exist at all yeah, so, so this burden, is, whether it's a risk to, to humanity, maybe it gets to some of the creation myth. Uh, it certainly gives us a fabric, right, for why religion exists, because it bridges the unknown. I mean, is that how you see the creation myth, the, the, you know, this idea that there's a suggestion of a God um, because it's not eternal? There, there are a lot of things to kind of unravel in what you said. I mean, one a, a basic point is if you think what science is it's the it's 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 people who take delight in the unknown because you can't do research without that so you have to research means that mm. you're standing on the edge of the known looking out into the unknown and enjoying that right so you're not making something up you accept that there are things mm. that you don't know and then you set out to try and discover as much as you can about the things that you don't know. That's right. a different mindset, I think, to the to the, the other side of the coin, the other extreme, is that we are afraid of the unknown. So you either decide not to go there, you don't open the door, you just hide, or right. you just yeah. invent stuff, you just make stuff up. Right. <laughs> you know, you just because you just don't want to <laughs> right. say, I don't know, for whatever reason, you, it bothers you. And I think that's a really important 
point. It, th there's a very famous essay, which I'd recommend to everyone if you've not read it. It's called The Value of Science by Richard Feynman, who's a great hero for virtually all scientists, physicists anyway, all wanted to be Feynman at some point, right? Nobel Prize winning physicist, tremendous character. Great book called Surely You Must Be Joking, Mr. Feynman, actually, which is a collection of stories about him. Um, but he wrote an essay in 1955, I think it was. It's available on the web. MIT have made it publicly available called The Value of Science, Richard Feynman. You type in, you'll get it. And uh, in that essay, he came out of the Manhattan Project. So he'd been, he works on the atomic bomb with Oppenheimer and others. And he he, he sort of says in the in the preamble, he's, he's, he was surprised he was even alive in the, in the 50s because there's a strong feeling from Feynman, Oppenheimer and others, the people who worked on the atom bomb, that they delivered a power to the politicians and society that politicians and society could not control. And they were mm. pretty, they're almost right. You know, if you go forward a few years, there's Cuban Missile Crisis and so on. So they weren't far off. So what it caused many of them to do is reflect on the value of this mode of thought. That, and Because, as I said, science, this embracing of the unknown. Mm -hmm. And he said... That, that, that probably the most important thing of all, and not the things, you know, like in today's language, the iPhones or the computers or the internet or the, the vaccines, right, that science delivers, even those things, not the most important, it's the mindset. And mm. the mindset is that accepting the fact that we don't know everything, right, accept that, that's mm. the basis, that's the foundation on which all reliable knowledge, I would argue, that we have today about nature and the universe is built. It's because someone said, I don't know. And if you extend that, if the more people we have in our society, particularly in positions of power, actually, who are prepared to say, I don't know, <laughs> we might try, or the, the data has changed, right? The, I know some more now, so I'll change my position. The more people that know that, the better. And just to finish, he said that even if you think about what democracy is, mm. right, that most valuable thing that seems to have nothing to do with science, it's the same idea. Because democracy, the most important thing about democracy is that you change government. <laughs> That's the most important thing. You mm. change every four or five years. Why? Because you accept that nobody knows how to run a society. <laughs> That's wow. why. If you thought you knew, you would be a dictator and you wouldn't change government. So it, it's a brilliant essay. That's a beautiful, beautiful thought. It's like, and because it, it just in itself is, in order to accept that you don't know something, you need to have the humility to, to I don't know the answer. That takes a certain maturity. Yeah. And honesty, intellectual honesty. And I, I feel like what you're saying about standing on the edge of the known is that science might arrive at an idea that God did exist or does exist. And that's what we've discovered now. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like not... Science is, yeah. Science is the study of nature. Um, and uh, uh, so nature is reality. It's out there. Right? And, and science... Mm -hmm. Is not to you know to go around proving or disproving things or you know having some pre preordained idea of what nature is like. It's just we're just trying to understand nature. Yeah. So yeah. if there are elements of nature that are completely incomprehensible to us at the moment, but we stumble across them and we can observe them, then they I would argue yeah. that they're then science well, because that, that, science is a study of nature. Just to go back on this thirteen point eight billion years is the concept of time. Mm. Right. And, and so this is 
clearly human-made, the word time, but it's actually a very, very important ageing instrument that gets to talk about, if I look in the sky, how do I know it's 13.8 billion years? How do I know there's a couple of trillion stars? And How do I know that's just not light, refracting a certain way? It's a, it's a perfect question. Uh, because it seems impossible, doesn't it? It seems, how can you know? How can you measure the distance to a star? How can you? You Did you just decide? It was a <laughs> tremendous effort. If you go back to the si- si- uh, 17th century, 16th century, 18th century, it, the, 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 great, the LHC, you know, the Large Hadron Collider or the Apollo program of the time was to try to measure the distance initially from the Earth to the Sun which is called One Astronomical Unit. And uh, that was done in a, in a very subtle and clever way by watching something called the transit of Venus, which is a, when the Venus floats across the face of the sun. And by watching it from different positions on the Earth, you, you can do some geometry, and they were very smart, and they figured out they could use this to find the distance from the Earth to the sun. Amazing. Once you have that, you use parallax, believe it or not, to get mm-hmm. the distance to the nearest stars. What's parallax? So parallax is, you know, with your eyes, if you, if, you, if you close one eye and then close the other eye and something moves, right? No so way. So you see that it moves. Yeah, so that's like, you know, where you go, your true aim is the one that doesn't move when you close the other eye, right? Yeah, so, so, so you do that and, and it moves. It's because of the distance between your eyes. Yeah. Uh, and so, so you close one, you close the other, and the angles change a bit and you can see how far something is away. And that's Amazing. how you perceive depth to some extent. Yeah. If you know the distance from the Earth to the Sun, then you can look at the position of a star in the sky in, let's say, January, and then look at it in July. And you've gone halfway around the sun. So your eyes, in that case, are twice the distance from the Earth to the sun. Right, 180 right. million miles or something like that. That makes sense. And you see the star shift a bit. Yes. <laughs> right, because it's just the same as doing that, right, from January right. to July. And that's how you do the distance to the nearest stars. Mm-hmm. And then from then what happens is you try to find some relationship between the brightness of a star and something else that it does. Mm-hmm. And that there are things called variable stars, which, which vary. So they go light and dark and light and dark. And they vary in a way that's proportional to how bright they actually are, which is a really thing to call Cepheid variables. And so if you know how bright something is, actually, and you know how bright it looks, then you can guess how, or, or calculate how far away it is, right? Because the further away it is, the dimmer it is, because <laughs> you know how bright it is. So that's another way of doing it. Then we have things called type 1a supernova explosions, which are mm-hmm. very bright, and we know how bright they actually are, and we can see them in distant galaxies, and that allows us to tell how far away the galaxies are. Then finally, which goes to the end of your question, right. you find that if you look at very distant galaxies, then the light from them is stretched, means it goes redder, because longer wavelength light is redder. Uh-huh. It's called redshift. Uh-huh. And you find that the further away the galaxy is, the more stretched the light is. So right. it's a direct measurement you can make. And that tells you how fast the universe is expanding. Because what's happened is the light has been traveling across space for, you know, 50 million years or 100 million years, or mm-hmm. sorry, billion years, <laughs> well, yeah, whatever. Let's say you can see them out to 10 billion years or something like that. That's crazy. And, and it means that the light has been traveling for 10 billion years across the universe. And if it's stretched by, like, say, a factor of three, then it tells you the universe is stretched by a factor of three during that time. 
So that allows you to measure the expansion rate of the universe. And if you know how fast it's expanding at all these different times, then you can wind it back using Einstein's theory, actually, to go, when was everything on top of each other? So it's it's a whole thing that began back in the 1600s with these uh, and 1700s with these missions around the world on sailing ships. Amazing. There's a great, to, to measure the transit of Venus and then you get the distance and then you get another distance, another distance. It's called the distance ladder. So it's a story that spans centuries. This idea that people just wanted to measure distances, the distance to the stars. Wow. And that's how you do it. That it can I ask a really stumpy question? So you've got the the distance ladder, and so that was the uh, you're you're mapping the stars essentially, right? And you quoted, and there were some incredible numbers. A you knowing all the numbers off a heart like that, but also like the 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 size is like it's so hard to comprehend, right? And so does in the physicist world, do people pick up where the other person left off to continue the mapping? It's really exciting now because now there's a satellite up there called Gaia, which is a satellite that's um, mapping the positions and speeds of stars in the Milky Way. And it's doing thousands of them, thousands and thousands, and thousands. So it's building a 3D map of the galaxy and it's measuring how the stars are moving. And if you know where the stars are and how they're moving, then you can run that movie forwards and backwards in time so you can see the history of the of the galaxy and the future of the galaxy and by doing that this data is allowing us to say that you know um let's say five billion years ago there was a collision between two a smaller galaxy in the milky way and you can see those stars still orbiting in a different way around the milky way today and trace that all back and so you can do galactic archaeology and you start to see how the galaxy evolved and you start to see there are suggestions that there are connections between collisions between galaxies and the formation of our solar system because these collisions affect star formation rates and things so you could start to think well is it possible that we exist and we're talking now because of a galactic collision that happened like seven billion years ago and we're at the level of precision where we can start to talk in those terms and answer questions like that when is it going to be i don't know when have they fit when will they finish all the it's up there now i don't know um exactly when it is taking data or but but it's it's data set is being analyzed now i think it's probably still taking data actually but yeah i can't quite i don't i don't know the answer to that question but it's it's, it's i think it's still i could go on my phone and check quick question to the layman um, you know, we space and, and scientists uh, have used this term you know, a number of light years away. And perhaps you want to give a little definition of why we need to measure it in light years. Why don't they just say, look, we're five and a half years away from getting to Pluto or whatever, <laughs> right? Well, it's because light is its one of the strangest things in the universe, but one of the most useful because it always sure. travels at the same speed. Mm-hmm. It's what's called a constant of nature. Right. So no matter how the thing moves that emits the light mm-hmm. or how the thing's moving that's going to receive the light, the light travels. Uh, there's a great book. I'm, I'm recommending a load of books now. There's a great book on relativity by um, Robert Gerosh. It's, it's kind of a, an older book now, but he's one of the great experts. And he says in that book that light seems to care about space and time, right? the fabric of the universe. It doesn't okay. care about what emitted it or what received it. It just goes along. It's, so it's a perfect measuring instrument 
because right. it always travels at the same speed. It doesn't matter if the thing that emitted it is flying away from you at 99% the speed of light. If it emits light towards you, the light comes at the speed of light and goes past you. Wow. So that allows you to measure, not, well, it allows you to measure distances, which is why it's useful, because a light year sure. is the distance light travels in a year. And it, you, you, you know, if, if I said the distance a baseball travels in a year, you'd say, well, that's a stupid unit of measurement because how fast right. did you throw the baseball? But light <laughs> right. travels at the same speed. So that's why it's useful. It's much more than that, though. Light, because it travels at the same speed, always, and nothing travels faster than light, it defines what's called the causal structure of the universe. So it tells us, if you have something that happens, can that something influence something else or not? Like, for example, anything that's, let, let's say there's a year light travel time. Mm-hmm. So anything that's further away than a light year right. for that time, for mm-hmm. a year, within the space of a year, you can't communicate with it. It can't influence it. There can be no co- um, communication between the two because you'd have to go faster than light to get from that place to the other event. And so so light, the light plays a fundamental role in relativity. It's not only useful... It actually defines what's called the causal structure of the universe. And that's where you get into, which we might talk about, black holes and things, because they're regions of space oh, we from will which be. even yeah. light can't escape. Not all. Oh, oh, oh there's, a, there's a forthcoming attraction okay? yeah. in the movie <laughs> Isn't that business. Handy? That's, that, that's coming soon. By the way, just for anyone listening with all the books and uh, uh, outside reading that's being referenced, we will be listing them. Yeah. <laughs> oh, for sure. This one. Oh, for sure. This is a classic book. And um, it's it's one of the it's written in the seventies. It's the textbook, one of the great textbooks on black holes and cosmology. Stephen Hawking and George awesome. Ellis. And there's a there's a and I've I've put myself on the spot now, and it's a really ridiculous thing to do in a podcast because I was going to read something <laughs> from the introduction. Are you going to give us a bit means, of poetry? That means that I need to. Uh, <laughs> it's a textbook. So the large scale structure of space time. Like Hawking and Ellis. I can't find it, but it but it's somewhere. <laughs> it's somewhere in the introduction where. He says that because see the thing is that so so light travels through space and time at this constant speed and right. divides it up into regions that can influence particular events and regions mm-hmm. where events can't influence other events. So they say in there something that gravity and gravity tells you how all that curves and bends and sure. warps. Right, that's why. And so so in that sense, it determines the causal structure of the universe. That's what they say in the introduction. It's gravity that that tells that tells you and warps space and tells you which regions can influence other regions and which can't. It's beautiful. We'll come back to gravity for the moment, but if we want to get past that wonderful ice breaking session and back to a quick definition of you know, what is particle physics, uh, as it will pertain to the rest of the, the discussion. So particle physics is um, the study of the smallest building blocks of the universe and the forces mm-hmm. that operate between them and in particular uh, the, the forces excluding gravity so we, we, gravity doesn't come into particle physics at the moment Perfect. and the, it, it should do right thing which is where black holes come in again which we'll talk about in a bit but um at the moment the reason is gravity is so weak as a force between particles that it's completely unmeasurable Mm-hmm. But there are three other forces in the universe. There's uh, the familiar one is electromagnetism, which is right. electricity, magnetism, fridge magnets, and so on. That's one force. And then there are two forces that operate in the atomic nucleus, called the weak and strong nuclear forces. 
And um, they're the things that stick the nucleus together and mm -hmm. allow radioactive decay and so on. And uh, so it's the study of those forces and the, the, the fundamental particles that interact through those forces that I would define as particle physics. Okay, that's a that's a fabulous definition. Can you just describe those latter two forces? Because I think most people, electromagnetism, some people will get, and, and you gave a, a quick you know, description of how we might see that in everyday life. But perhaps you can just elaborate a little further on the other two forces that we can describe. Well, yeah. I mean, you think about what I mean by a force, by the way, it's the means by which things interact with each other in the universe. So you, we're sitting on a chair now or standing on a the floor or something, uh, th there are forces acting. Um, mm. Why don't you fall through the chair? Right, there's something stopping you falling through the chair. And that's electromagnetism, actually. Um, and uh, Why is and, that electromagnetism that I'm not falling well, through the chair? The, it's the, the, There's actually, there are two bits to it. One bit is that there are, there are electrons, right. which are negatively charged things, in the atoms in your chair and in your ass if you want to whatever <laughs> the best way of saying okay. i was wondering when you're gonna tell me i have a magnet in my ass basically uh, whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and like charges repel so there's there's a there's a force wow and there's also actually there's also it should be said um a quantum mechanical effect which is electrons don't like to be close to each other which is called mm -hmm. the exclusion principle. So you try and squash them closely. They, they, they repel each other and they right. also try and avoid each other. And the combination of those is, is what makes stuff rigid, solid, right? So what, right. What, what, why, is, why is a brick wall solid? It's ultimately those effects. So it's forces. That's all there is. That's how you perceive the universe. It's why you stick together. Mm. Right? So there's electromagnetism, which is a long range force, which is responsible for everything, actually, mm -hmm. that we experience other than gravity but if you go into the atom deep into the atom there's an atomic nucleus and the electrons go around the nucleus yes and that nucleus is made of little things um protons and neutrons but they're in turn made of things called quarks which are the smallest things that we know i've of. never heard of a quark i've got well, as far they, as the nucleus yeah well they make so they make so you have two up quarks and a down quark roughly in a proton and two downs what? and an up in a neutron right so they right. they make up the protons and neutrons those things are stuck together mm -hmm. by something called the strong nuclear force, which is way stronger than electromagnetism at very short. But 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 it but it doesn't leak out of the nucleus; mm -hmm. it kind of fades away, um, and so 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 you don't see it, you don't yeah. feel it. No. We we don't really interact with it, other than it's holding our atomic nuclei together. So it's right. really important. Yes. And then the, the other one, the weak force, is something that allows protons to turn into neutrons. And that's really important because what happens in the sun? So in yeah. the sun, the sun shines by taking hydrogen, which is protons, mm -hmm. single protons, mm -hmm. right. and building helium, which mm -hmm. is the next simplest element. Helium nucleus is two protons and two neutrons. Right. So what has to happen is a proton has to turn into a neutron before it can stick together to make helium nuclei in the sun. And that's the weak nuclear force. So without that, the sun wouldn't shine, the stars wouldn't shine. It seems like an appropriate time to talk about the particle that might be missing, uh, you know, the Large Hadron Collider experiment at CERN. I understand you've hmm. been or are involved in, in, in that as one of the researchers, uh, or you've yeah, participated. Years. Yeah, and I know you've visited it and, and, and all the rest of it. But if I frame it as, you know, there's uh, this particle uh, that, that has been described or has been named the Higgs boson particle, or also hmm. AKA the God particle, uh, perhaps you'd like to describe for people what that is, 
why it's significant, and what the hell is this big thing in CERN trying to do um, at the speed of light to collide these particles? Yeah, and then we've discovered it now, so it, it exists, the Higgs mm-hmm. particle. It was uh, predicted by Peter Higgs and uh, others, actually, in the 1960s. Wow. And it was discovered in the 21st century. So it's, When you uh, say it was predicted, what like what was it that so they predicted? The the problem was when when so so what what was a, a physical theory right? It's some sort of framework, usually a mathematical framework, mm-hmm. that allowed you to predict things. Mm-hmm. And um, we had this framework called the standard model of particle physics, which was developed really from the fifties and sixties onwards, mm-hmm. and really became sort of a full physical theory. I'd say in the seventies and eighties, and um, that theory had a problem with it, and it had a problem with mass. So, so fundamentally, mass, if you give um, uh, an electron, for example, that they have mass, right? It was measured back in the, when was it, 18, uh, the turn of the 20th century, the mass of the electron was measured. Um, so it's, if you just give particles mass in the theory, just mathematically, just write it in, then there were huge mathematical problems. You basically couldn't do it. And so they had to find, the physicists had to find a way of giving particles mass without breaking the theory, without messing up the structure of the theory. And the way they found was this, the Higgs mechanism, which is um, essentially what you do is you introduce something else into the universe and things get mass by interacting with it. So, So there's an analogy that's often used. It's like wading through treacle or maple syrup or something like that. You know, you, you, if you walk through stuff and it interacts with you and it slows you down and you get kind of more massive. And it's kind of, it's, it's kind of in that analogy that the correct thing to say is that particles get mass fundamentally. The fundamental particles like electrons are getting mass by interacting with the Higgs field which permeates the universe. And that was a way of allowing the particles to have mass in the theory without messing the whole beautiful structure of the theory up. And it predicted that there was this thing called the Higgs boson, a particle associated with this field that fills the universe, which should be we should be able to make if we bang particles together with high enough energy. So if we build a big enough particle accelerator, we should be able to make Higgs particles and observe them. And so that's basically what the LHC was. It was it was guaranteed because we knew what the theory predicted that we would either find the Higgs boson at the LHC or some kind of Higgs boson or something else because the whole theory collapsed at those energies that the, the LHC bangs things together. The whole theory collapsed without the Higgs. Yeah. It was an inevitability. So we knew what machine to build. It wasn't inevitable we'd find the Higgs because that was just a prediction. Nature can be cleverer and smarter than we are, right? It often is. So it could have been something else. And in fact, my most cited paper, so in, so in, uh, in physics and science, you measure success of a paper by how many people refer to it in their own papers. And my most cited paper, which is like loads, hundreds and hundreds, it might be the thousand citations now, it was was physics at the LHC without a light Higgs boson. <laughs> so I wrote it before we discovered it, right, with a couple of colleagues. And it, it, it gets cited for some other stuff that was developed in it. But it just shows you that in, in 2000, which I think I wrote the paper in 2000, 
Uh, it was perfectly legitimate to think that the Higgs particle would not be found, but something else, some more exotic mechanism would be found at the LHC. But then we found the Higgs, which is quite incredible, right? Because it was 50 years after it was predicted mathematically. And there, there's a deep point right? that you can use mathematics to, to predict, make a prediction about reality. In this case, the existence of a particle. It's a yeah, real yeah. thing. And then 50 years later, you build the world's biggest, you know, experiment, 27 kilometers in circumference uh, underneath Switzerland and France. And, and all the 88 countries, I think, of the world came together to do it. And you switch it on and you see the thing that this guy derived with a pencil in 1963 or whatever it was <laughs> right that's a remarkable thing isn't it that's it, incredible because it, it it just reminds me of what you said earlier about thinking in more of a future tense and and that you can think in that way with science and maths right and mm. the um yeah that it just again it may, makes you want to take it more seriously basically is what how it makes me feel when you say that one of the yeah. great mysteries there's a physicist called eugene vigner very famous physicist um and he said that um it's one of the great it's one of the great mysteries that mathematics he called it the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in the physical sciences he wrote an essay it's another essay that vigner wrote this time um but it's true in some sense it's it is one of the great mysteries that for some reason, mathematics can be a guide to reality. Remember, as we said at the start, science is the observation of reality. And the fact that you can you can predict things about reality using mathematics is interesting. It's a whole discussion about why that might be the case. I think of math as, as it's just another language to explain life, right? And that's why it's so powerful. It has its own construct, its own principles, but it is, at the end of the day, a language, a way to express and you're right, it's it's incredibly powerful when you think we've got to go and build plant machinery, we need technology, we need to evolve, you know, to get what the power of a pen and a mind had you know, all, the, all those years ago. I have a, two very quick things on this, if I, if I might. One is that um, I just want to, f for the audience, state that in this 27 kilometres underground that you were accelerating these particles, they were travelling at the speed of light. Right? No, no, just just below. Massless particles have to travel at the speed of light, and anything wow. with mass has to travel slower than the speed of light. Makes Yo. total sense. Makes total that is sense. You, now you may have already answered this, Brian, um, and forgive me. I'm taking on a lot of information today. The God particle, it's been discovered. So what's its significance? What do we do now? Cool. So there is a, answer the question of mass. Then what happens? What? Yeah. Just to say, by, by the way, the God particle, that was um, Leon Lederman, um, one of the great Nobel Prize winning physicists, invented that term. He, he wrote a book which got called The God Particle. It was about the Higgs and the quest for it. Right. And uh, But he subsequently said that he really hated that. I think he blamed it on his publisher and said it was total bollocks. You know, it's <laughs> got nothing to do with God. No, it's, but, it, but it sold books, right? Yeah, right. So, right. I mean, it got me. I, I'm not going to lie, it got me. <laughs> but, but, um, but so what? What? So as I said, the Higgs is is now one of the, as far as we can tell, the fundamental components of reality, right? Oh. It's, it's a, it's a, it, it was a new kind of fundamental particle that we'd suspected. Now we know it exists. So it opens a door to a deeper understanding. What we're doing at LHC now 
one of the th many things we're doing, other than searching for other particles, is to try and make as many Higgs particles as we can so we can mm -hmm. watch them and see how they behave and observe them. Because we want to know. There are a lot of big questions about this thing and yeah. um, how it came to be here, how it fits in with a wider framework. You know, so, so we're just at the beginning. It's, it's almost like discovering a planet and saying, oh, good, we've discovered it now. We actually want to go to the planet. <laughs> what happens? There's yeah. a lot to know, and so so it's 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 no, I'd say it's not quite right. It's a very important part of of our understanding of fundamental physics. Um, it's not the God particle, right? It's not the answer. It's not the end of. It's the beginning. It's just it's another of those fundamental components, which is extremely important. Yeah, sure. And 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 when you when we think of just to describe to the layman, when we say it gives us mass. Would it, is it fair to say that we exist because of this particle? Uh, it is, in a sense, because if you took it away, then we, the, we would be the, nothing. The, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> but then again, it's the same with the electron, mm, or right. the quarks, or the or gravity, or any. So there's a long list of things. <laughs> take them that all if away. you take any <laughs> of them away, then then we wouldn't be here. But yeah, so so but it, it is fundamental. I think it's it's profoundly important that. That without it, you you would not have complex structures in the universe. That's clearly true. Right. That's cool. Right. Wow. Um, unbelievable. Um, yeah. That might, I'm, I'm wondering how deep that might be for the listeners. It's the deepest question. I mean, I, I have a friend I work with a lot, Jeff Forshaw at Manchester, who I write papers and books with, and he always says that the 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 most incredible thing is, is that we, we anything exists at all. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's just that the, 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 the it's the great unanswered question. Is which we started with really is why why does the universe exist at all? Yeah, it's so complex as well. Like even when you were talking about the speed of light, right? I'm just listening to that. I'm just like, wow, what a handy tool! Like that's thank you very much, light, for being constant. <laughs> Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's <sighs> remarkable. I mean, it's part of the the it, it feeds into Einstein's theory of relativity, which is it's part of the structure of the universe itself. So space yes. and time how they fit together, what the geometry is of the universe. So complex. That, that's intertwined with this speed of massless things and it's all part of the same yeah. construct. I mean, obviously, our, our assumptions and the discoveries that scientists made are there to be challenged, right? And they're there to evolve. And, you know, one, one, one thesis may turn into a completely different outcome revisited 10 years later. Could our assumptions be wrong about the Higgs boson particle or about the way we define an electron, right? How much confidence do we have with this kind of taxonomy that we're using? It, it's, it's a good question. It's almost certainly the case that the electron is not a fundamental building block of nature. Right. And, and likewise, I suppose, the, the, the Higgs in that sense, it, we, we strongly suspect there's a deeper layer. Mm -hmm. So you right. hear about things called string theory and, and absolutely. Like so so um, what, what experimentally, which is all there really is in science, right? I suppose when you, what 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 we're saying is that with the biggest microscope in the world, these things look like point-like objects. So we cannot measure any size when it comes to an electron. We can when it comes to a proton which we did in the 60s ultimately. So we, we, we thought maybe that's a little point-like thing and it wasn't. It, it turned out it's quite a big thing with internal structure because we got a bigger microscope. 
And so it's when it's, you say bigger, can you just give me like some well, sort of better, real world uh, compare the size of a proton to an electron? You said it's bigger. It, I'm I, we're like talking like a goldfish to a to a tadpole. Oh, like well, what we say in a sense. I mean, in a sense, it's a, so 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 a, a proton is because we don't know how big an electron is. Right? Right. I can't quite answer your question. It, it, as far as we can tell, it's got no size at all. What? Um, but it, but it, that's probably not right. That's almost certainly not right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. We, we have a, an idea called the, the Planck length, which we'll get to again if we do black holes, which is something we can infer is the smallest distance we can talk of with any understanding. And that's way, 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 way smaller than the proton. Um, but um, but we can't measure those distances. So that, that it's, it's experimental in a way at the moment, particle physics. We have a theory that tells us how the smallest things we can see that as far as we can tell have got no size but probably <laughs> do but how they interact with each other and how they build up the world that right. we see but i'm sure there's an underlying um structure that we've not yeah. discovered yet so let's just define what what people think space is that's so, you know you've got, you got people like felix baumgartner you know going up three hundred thousand. was it anyway so he's up there and and you know at what point is he actually in space versus you know, he's somewhere in the stratosphere or, or within Earth's gravity. Ah, so space. So space, in that sense, right, has got an arbitrary definition. I think it's, is it 100 kilometres or something like up? That's what I heard. There's a, yeah, there's, there's a, and, and people say, if you go above that, you're an astronaut, you're in space. Um, right. You, you've not, you've not really, there's no clear definition of what you mean by that. Because you, you mm. could say, because you never escape the, and you think about it really technically, being really pedantic, that the gravitational pull of the Earth falls away as the square of the distance away. So you double your distance away and it goes down by a factor of four. So in that sense, you never escape <laughs> the, the pull of the Earth completely. I mean, you you get into the gravitational influence of other objects, so it becomes negligible. Um, but so, so, you know, and likewise with the atmosphere, you know, it just dissolves away tenuously until there's not much of it left as you go up. But it's an arbitrary definition. But that's not what we're talking. Well, so but at that point where where the gentleman Felix discovered the distance where space is, is, is that if I get to that point, do I just start floating? No, I mean, you, you're not, you know, the, the, the Earth's gravitational pull is pretty much as strong as it is on the ground. Wow. Um, the floating thing is extremely important. Right. If we want to talk about that. <laughs> Let, let's do it. Let's do it. So so what, what is happening in in the space station, right, in the International Space Station where the astronauts are floating, um, right? So that means that by floating, you mean if there's a pen or something. And you let go of it, it doesn't move. That's what you mean, isn't it? So you, you, you sat there and you go, it stays where it's... Um, so Newton would have said that what's happening is that the, the this... I mean, this is the way you think of an orbit, that the space station is falling towards the Earth, but it's moving sufficiently fast in that direction that it keeps missing. So it's constantly yep. falling. Um, the question is, though, it's kind of interesting if you think about it. So the gravitational pull on the space station, in Newton's language, is bigger than the gravitational pull on the astronaut because the space station is more massive. And Newton says that the more massive you are, the stronger the pull of gravity. But Newton also says that, but it's also, if you think about the gravity pushing, like a force pushing something, it's harder to accelerate something if it's more massive. So it's hard. You have to push a bus harder than a bike to accelerate it, right, to 10 miles an hour or whatever. 
And those things cancel out in Newton's picture. So the gravitational pull is pulling everything down and it's pulling on the more massive things more than the less massive things. But it's also harder to accelerate the more massive things and the less massive things. And it all cancels out and everything just stays there. <laughs> right. Right. Einstein realized that there's a better explanation for that. And it's better in the sense it's a better theory. Uh, Einstein says that the reason that everything just floats is because there are no forces acting on them at all. <laughs> right. Very now, this simple. is really weird. It's, it's, uh, what, what's happening is in Einstein's picture is in free fall. So you're falling towards the Earth right? In from one picture. Free fall is what you call you call it. It's got a fancy name, which is an inertial frame of reference. It means no forces are acting. So in free fall, if I let go of something, why does it stay there? Because there are no forces acting. So nothing goes anywhere. So free fall is the natural state of things. So Einstein says it's actually on the surface of the Earth, standing on the surface of the Earth is where something's happening to you. Um, you're, you're not in free fall anymore. Something's got in the way of your free fall through space and time, actually through space. Time. Something's in the way. It's the surface of the Earth. Right. And the Earth exerting a force on you, right, stopping you falling in your nice natural the way of sure. things. And that force is accelerating you because it does, because <laughs> forces accelerate. So what's happening in Einstein's picture is that you're sat on your chair now. And the reason you think you've got weight is because you're flying upwards. You're being accelerated upwards at 9.8 meters per second squared and you're being pressed into your chair. Just in the same way that if you accelerate in a car, you get pressed into the seat. It's exactly the same thing in Einstein's picture. So, so and you say, well, why? How is all this working? And ultimately, what Einstein says is that there's a fabric of the universe, which is called space-time. We always call it the fabric of the universe. And it's distorted by the presence of matter and energy. So it curves. And, and everything on its natural way of things will, fall, will, will just take nice straight lines through that curved space. That's the natural way of things. If you're taking a natural straight line, which the astronauts and the space station are, then everything's fine and there are no forces, there's nothing and everything just floats and it's all very nice. Uh, if you disrupt that straight line because something gets in the way, uh, then you feel a force. That's and so it's a completely it's a that's that's the fundamental basis of Einstein's theory of gravity, completely different to Newton. I always say, you know, Newton said, you know, the apple, I mean, it's apocryphal, but the apple fell on his head from the uh, tree. And he would have said, well, because there's a force on the apple, which is the Earth, uh, the gravitational force, and it pulls the apple down. Well, actually pulls them together. It's a force on both of them, pulls them together. And uh, but Einstein said, no, Newton accelerated up to headbutt the apple. <laughs> that's basically that's, that's a completely different I mean, way of looking. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge something here. Maybe maybe I'm going crazy because I've read about this and I'm still confused. So. Getting back to the term freefall, right? Why couldn't it have been if, if, if the idea of using your Apple pen, if there's no forces at work, it's just constant. It's not doing anything. So why couldn't it be free climb rather than free fall? Why do we have to fall at all? Well, it's free fall in the sense that, I suppose it's language, isn't it? It's, it's a sense that it looks from our perspective as if, if I drop that pen, then it falls to the ground. Yeah. Right. What What is interesting from Einstein's perspective is actually what's happening is that now 
when 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 there are no four when I let go of it, it's it's now on on a straight line through space time, which is great. Nothing's happening, but the ground is coming up. So the ground comes up to hit it, and and then you have all sorts of conceptual problems about why is, but if the ground's coming accelerating in in London and also in Sydney, then why isn't the Earth getting bigger? Yeah, I was going to say yeah. That's that really. It's it's harder to picture, but this is to do with this distortion of space time. So it's the warping of space and time by the presence of the Earth that's that's causing these straight line trajectories to look unusual from our perspective. I mean, we've got so many more questions, but let's deal with the black hole. We've been dancing around. We've you. been flirting with the idea. So why why does the theory not work? And start with a if you could for everyone a, a, a kind of general definition of a black hole. So. A black hole, I mean, the, the way that they're made in nature, which is a good place to start, the, the, one, the ones that we observe in the sky, are by the collapse of, uh, some of the smaller ones, the collapse of stars, very massive mm -hmm. stars. So you've got a very, very massive star, let's say 30, 40 times the mass of the sun, let's go really big, which, and there are plenty of those around in the universe. And they, they hold themselves up against the pull of their own gravity mm -hmm. by burning nuclear fuel which releases energy, which creates a pressure, which holds them up. So they're kind of, a, they're in equilibrium, right? They're trying to collapse and they're, they're hot and everything's moving around and they hold up. But ultimately they'll run out of nuclear fuel right? because of a finite size. And so they mm -hmm. stop doing that and they collapse. Mm -hmm. And for these very massive things, tens of times the mass of the sun, nothing can stop them collapsing. And so they get denser and denser and denser. They collapse, they collapse, they collapse. Now for every object, if you think about the pull of gravity on the surface of the, of the surface of the Earth, then you, we know you know you can build a rocket, you can escape. You have to go at some right. speed, whatever it is, seventeen thousand miles an hour. Can't remember exactly sure. what it is, but you've got to go mm -hmm. to get out. Um, if you crush the Earth down and make it denser, then you get closer and closer to all this mass, and so the gravitational pull at the surface gets bigger, right? And so if you keep crushing it. You can imagine you get to a point where you'd have to travel at the speed of light to get off. And mm. for, it's called the Schwarzschild radius of the, the Earth. And that's for the Earth. It's about, if I remember rightly, about 1.4 millimetres or something like that. I know what it is for the sun. Wow. For the sun, it's three kilometres. Mm -hmm. So if you squash the sun down into a ball that was three kilometres, then you'd have to, you, you, even light couldn't escape from the surface. And that's that collapse is what makes a black hole. So it's when it's when something collapses and collapses and collapses, nothing can stop it, and it goes inside its Schwarzschild radius. So there's a region of space where you'd have to go faster than light to get out. So there's space inside that little well, dot, that three in, point. In that yeah. In Einstein's theory, absolutely, yes. Right, oh. so, uh, so, so the space... And essentially, the thing collapses out of existence, and so you've just got this kind of this this kind of really heavily distorted space inside, and this singularity that we don't know about somewhere, which is in a very real sense the end of time actually in there, and so you get this complete distortion of space and time. So that's a black hole. So so it's defined by this this region which we call the event horizon, which has got this you know yeah, everyone yeah. knows the word, which is basically the region of space where if you go in. You're fine, according to general relativity. You'd be in there, but you can't get out. And more than that, 
you not only can you not get out but you're you are going to the end of time and actually for, for black holes that are quite big even like the one at the center of the milky way galaxy these things that are millions of times the mass of the sun the end of time is is minutes away from you even in the biggest ones so you can go in but you, you the time is going to end for you. you you go into the singularity if you like but it's better to say you go to the end of time so that's a black hole can you see every event what is it that you can see like every event that's happened in that space ever during yeah you can't you as can't, you go in actually. but obviously you can't come out but you'll be going in you see and everything Right. Yeah, it's actually a misnomer that it's, it, people often say it, but it's not right. In fact, but I, I know what you, I mean people have said it. For, loads of people say it, but it's wrong actually. When you look at actually, the, the, because you're in there, one way to think about it, because you're in there for quite a short time before your time ends, mm -hmm. you, you you don't receive anything like the, the whole. <laughs> There's no epiphany. <laughs> no, no. So so the so that's kind of interesting. You know, it's cool, right? It's a really fascinating idea. These completely collapsed stars. The supermassive black holes, billions of times the mass of the sun at the centre of galaxies, uh, all fascinating. But in the the reason they're really interesting is because in the in the nineteen six seventies, Stephen Hawking um, noticed that they're not. It, it's people say black holes aren't completely black, right? So you might think black hole, nothing escapes. So that's it. If you go in, you're gone. And it just stays there forever because nothing gets out. He found that they do actually radiate. They have a temperature. They behave like anything else. And radiation comes off them. It's called Hawking radiation. And that ultimately makes them evaporate away in the very far future. In billions of billions of times the current age of the universe, right? These things last forever, almost, but not quite. It looks like they evaporate. And that caused absolute havoc in physics. And the reason it caused havoc is because people were worried about what happens when you throw something in. What happens to the information? So if I get this book, Stephen's textbook, and throw it into the black hole, um, does that information get destroyed? Or does it come back into the universe in the Hawking radiation eventually? Now, it's a fundamental part of all of science i would say physics certainly information isn't destroyed right if you know if you know and this is kind of an act of belief almost it's foundational if you know everything about the universe at some point some time you know everything's moving around and everything that's in there then you can predict what's going to happen in the future and you could predict what had happened in the past information is not destroyed but it looked to many people like black holes destroy information. Because the question was, when this thing's evaporated away, where's, what's happened to all the stuff that went in? And then you said time ends, like you said. Yeah, in, in, in general relativity, it's the end of time in the middle. So, so there's something funny going on, basically, in black holes. And this argument went on for 50 years. It is yeah. probably still going on, but it's almost, it's pretty much been solved now, most people think. The answer basically is the information comes out in the Hawking radiation. But in order to do that, mm -hmm. we've had to completely destroy, I would say, our notion of what space and time is. Right, so then th this is when you start, people say, you've probably heard it, when people say the universe is a hologram. Yeah. You might have heard that stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's because... It's because the way that the information appears to get out of the black hole in the Hawking mm. radiation 
seems to require a non-locality in the universe. So it seems to say that in some sense, the interior of the black hole might be also the far distant Hawking radiation that's gone out into the universe, hundreds of billions of light years away, probably by the time the black hole evaporates. But in some sense, it seems to be the same place. Uh, the, the other weird thing, which is easier to say, perhaps, is mm -hmm. that you go, well, if information goes into the black hole and then comes out again, eventually, mm -hmm. it's stored somewhere, right? It, it must, it it has must to, right? stay. It's yeah. like a hard disk, right? So yeah. black holes are the ultimate hard drives, right? They can store more information than anything else in the universe. Mm -hmm. But if you say, how much, how much information can I fit in a black hole? Right, you say, well, well, what, what is it going to be proportional to? Well, you think, if, how much information can I fit in a library? It must be something to do with the volume of the library. How many books can I get in it? Well, there must be right, a capacity. Must be. Right. The capacity of the library. How much can I yeah, fit in? Sure. With a black hole, the amount, the, the amount of information you can, that's stored there is proportional to its surface area and not its volume, right? So, so it's, the, it's the surface area of the event horizon and so it seems that, in some sense, the maximum amount of information you can fit in any in any area of space is nothing to do with the volume. It's to do with the surface area only. And that's the holographic thing. That's saying, well, that's like a hologram. It's saying that these things seem to be telling us that the, the universe is, is really, in a sense, got less dimensions. It's somehow that everything's happening on a surface. And what we we perceive in, in, in the interior, the interior doesn't really exist in the sense that a hologram doesn't exist, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's all, right. It's all right. a flat thing. Right. All the information's <laughs> on some surface. And that seems to be what they're telling us. If it's flat, it's like, I, I no longer want to travel through a black hole if I can just get all the information on the surface, right? I mean, I mean if, if volume's not important. Yeah, and then, then you start saying what happens then. Because as I said before, going all the way, it's probably too much. But when, when I was talking about Einstein earlier, I was talking about free fall and the fact that when you're falling freely, then nothing's happening to you. Mm -hmm. right? Now, in Einstein's description of a black hole, this thing, the event horizon, is nothing. It's mm -hmm. not there in mm -hmm. the theory of relativity. You just fall through it. You don't notice. For a very big black hole in particular, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you don't notice anything. It's, it's, it's part of the fundamental structure of the theory because you're just floating. Right. You, you might as well be standing still. I mean, just in a deep sense, you just float. Yeah. But then we've also got this quantum mechanics and the stuff that Stephen had originally calculated, which is saying somehow that information is stored on the boundary of the black hole on the event horizon. But the event horizon is not there. Mm, right, Einstein. Right. So what, what is it? What, what, what are we saying? Uh, and this has led to probably the deepest insights into fundamental physics of the last few decades trying to just reconcile those two things and it's all very simple questions about what happens if you throw something into a black hole does it come out again right. how does it get out how is the information encoded and the last thing i'll say which is the best thing of all and i have no understanding of what this means is that so this year and last year some of the some of the, you might say well if the information comes out in the Hawking radiation, how is it encoded? Like, how am I how am I going to measure it? How can I reconstruct what went in? And it turns out that the people who seem to have worked that out are quantum computer engineers, and not physicists, right? 
And it seems that the information is encoded in a, in a, in a way that we use when we're building quantum computers to make error correction work in the memory of quantum computers. So there's some deep link between that's quantum mind, computing that's mind blowing and black holes that's incredible space and yeah. time quantum mechanics all mixed up in these bizarre objects and that's why they're so fascinating uh it's fascinating when, when you were describing the black hole and the way, the way it contracts uh, I, 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 for some reason I, I kept thinking of solid solid state drives right yeah right? the chip is, is contracted to something so dense Solid state drive is a good example. If you could say, well, what would, what would happen if I kept putting information in? If I kept trying to store more and more information in my solid state drive, how much can I get in? And ultimately, if you keep doing it and keep putting stuff in and making smaller and smaller things, ultimately what happens is it collapses into a black hole. And it collapses into a black hole in such a way that the maximum amount of information is just the area of its event horizon. You said something earlier about um, with your example of a black hole with the size of a, uh, four times the sun. And you said that it will collapse uh, at some point. Right. And it's the equilibrium between the two. So I assume at some point the sun will collapse. Yeah, but it's not it's not massive enough. So there's a, there's something that will stop that. Mm -hmm. um, and so gravity, you know, it's pulling it, squashing it down. There's a thing called uh, which is we, we actually spoke about earlier which is mm -hmm. um, the fact that electrons don't like to be close to each other. Mm -hmm. Do you remember I said that as it plays a role yeah, in they being solid? Yeah. So what happens when the sun collapses is that those electrons get pushed closer and closer together in the collapse mm -hmm. and they move around faster and faster trying to avoid each other. Mm -hmm. And that makes a pressure which can mm -hmm. hold it up. It's called electron degeneracy pressure. But that means that so for anything... Um, less than 1.4 times the mass of the sun mm -hmm. it's called the chandrasekhar limit the chandrasekhar limit the, the, mm. then the that's after the physicist chandrasekhar who worked it out then that pressure can hold it up so it becomes what's called a white dwarf star so a white Ooh. dwarf star is is held up by that there's another one so if you get mm -hmm. a bit more mass and it goes again because it can't the electrons basically what happens is electrons would have to move faster than light to mm -hmm. hold it and they can't so it collapses mm -hmm. again the the protons turn into neutrons and you get mm -hmm. a neutron star and that's held up by the same thing but for neutrons and they're they're like you know stars the size of cities those things are more massive than the sun and 10 kilometers across or something like that held up by the neutrons but if you do more and more and more if the neutrons can't hold it up and that's mm -hmm. when you go through the Schwarzschild radius gets so small that you go through the event horizon. You, you, the event horizon comes out, essentially. But that's not happening to our sun. So so they, they burn hydrogen into helium, which is mm -hmm. what the sun is doing now. It's called a main sequence star. When they run out of hydrogen, then their core is basically helium. So the mm -hmm. thing starts to collapse. And then it heats up to the level where the helium can start to stick together to yep. form carbon and oxygen. Mm -hmm. That's yep. where the carbon and oxygen in the universe come from. And that, so that regenerates the star for a while and it gets mm -hmm. bright and hot and then, and, then, and then it will run out of that and then the big ones can collapse again and they can build things all the way up to iron, in fact, in their cores. And in the process, they swell up to become red giant stars. Mm -hmm. so, so they become enormous in that phase of their life. The, the, the sun will probably engulf the earth in that phase. 
It might not quite, that sometimes because it loses some mass, the Earth drifts out of it. But mm-hmm. roughly speaking, it'll come out, it'll certainly engulf Mercury and Venus and come out to what it'll approach the orbit of the Earth in size uh, in that final phase of its life before ultimately it'll collapse. Um, and the sun's not that massive. When do you envisage that happening? Uh, it, we know it's it's about... I mean, it starts to change in, in a few billion years. It, ultimately, it's got about five five billion years left or so. And then, and then ultimately Phew. what happens is the, 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 the outer layers drift away and it becomes a white dwarf and something oh. called a planetary nebula. If we have just a couple more definitions, just because I think these words are, are in popular culture, perhaps mm. you'd like to... Uh, Frame for us what a supernova is. Not a champagne supernova, just a supernova. So a supernova, there, there are some different types, but basically it's just when the star reaches the end of its life, runs out of fuel and collapses. Mm. Right. Um, and so the, this collapse, the, what you'll get, even when you form a black hole, it doesn't just collapse and go. It, you get these kind of bounces and it's chaotic and you, you emit loads of energy. So it's, a, it's a, basically an explosion Mm-hmm. that releases a tremendous amount of energy. Now that's there, there are different types. The, the other one, the one we use, actually, you know, I said that some of some supernova, we know how bright they actually are. Right. They're called type mm-hmm. 1A supernova. And they're different. They're, they're, um, they're usually something like a, a white a neutron star or a white dwarf. Um, actually, it'll be a... Let me just get this right. It'll be a white dwarf, actually, uh, with, a, with a companion star. Mm-hmm. next to it and so remember the white dwarf has a limit mm-hmm. the chandrasekhar limit can't be more than 1.4 times the mass of the sun so let's mm-hmm. say it was 1.39 and it was there and there's a big star going around it and yeah. and there's stuff falling onto it from the big star so it goes over the limit and then yeah. it collapses and explodes in a supernova and because we know the limit we know the process is always the same when we see one of these things we can say, well, we know how bright you are, actually, and we know how bright you look. So that allows us to measure the distance to you. And they're so bright that we can see them in galaxies that are way, way, you know, hundreds of millions of light years away. Yeah. And so we, that's how we measure the distance yeah. to galaxies. Yeah. Ryan, when was the last time we saw a supernova? I mean, we see them reasonably regularly. Um, so it would have been last year. We, we, we're always looking for them because every time we see one, yeah, we'll have, we'll have seen them. We may well have seen one this year, actually. We see because there's so many galaxies out there. So the the rate of them mm-hmm. is something. There's a rule of thumb, which is one per galaxy per century. You tend to say, um, but of course we can see hundreds of millions of galaxies. So, right, right. So, so we mad. see a lot of them, and every time yeah. we see one, one of these special ones, the Type One A, we can use that data to refine our measurement of the age of the universe. Mm-hmm. Because we can refine our measurement of the expansion of the universe, and so, so we're looking for them all the time, and we see them all the time. What other definitions might be interesting in popular culture to understand space as we know it? And I'll give you and I'll throw one out there as as one you could possibly answer for us is an exoplanet. Mm. Yes, yeah, so exoplanets. If you go back to the nineteen early nineteen nineties, or certainly nineteen eighties, better synthesizers. Better keyboards. We'll talk about that. Because <laughs> um, not better, but more characterful. But anyway, um, right. then we didn't know of any planets beyond our solar system because mm-hmm. we hadn't detected them. So even if we thought, well, we can't be special, we didn't know. 
Um, and then in the early 1990s, we started being able to detect planets. Um, and now we've detected well over 3,000. I can't remember the exact number. We, we've got missions up there like the Kepler telescope that are just trying to detect planets. Mm -hmm. So thousands of them. So now the statement is that pretty much every star in the sky will have planets around it, which is remarkable. If you go out, you know, it's a clear night. It's quite clear now, actually. If it's clear tonight, you go out and look at stars. Yeah. You, you can imagine that there will be solar systems around every one, pretty Ooh. much. Yeah. And so, so that allows us to start thinking, do, do statistics and say, well, how many potentially Earth-like planets might there be in the Milky mm -hmm. Way galaxy? And the answer is about 20 billion. We're onto some of the more so controversial Earth, there's, stuff. There's an Earth-like. There are about twenty billion potentially Earth-like planets. The, the reason people say potentially is what you mean there is a rocky planet, mm -hmm. the right distance from its star, possibly if everything's right to have liquid water on the surface and so on. Mm -hmm. So we don't know exactly, but but yeah, rocky planets in a nice distance from the star, perhaps one in ten stars has a has an earth-like planet in that sense so 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 exoplanet something with water on it um is earth an exoplanet is there a distinction no no exo just it just means not in our solar system oh not in a okay that's so, what an exoplanet is. so what's so the definition for a water planet of one that, that's likely to have water well we call them we, we talk about a thing called a habitable zone around a star Okay. And that's uh, the, now in the solar system, there are three planets in the habitable zone. There's Venus, Mars and Earth. Mm -hmm. uh, right. Earth in the middle. Venus is close to the sun, Mars further away. All of those planets, though, we think had water at one time or another on the right. surface. Mm -hmm. So they all could have been habitable in that sense. Um, okay. and, and still, you know, we're looking for life on Mars to this day. Why aren't we looking at Venus for a potential it, place? It to... had a runaway greenhouse effect. Um, okay. And it's now the hottest planetary surface in the solar system. It's 470 degrees Celsius or something. Is like that, that predictive in some sense for what we're heading towards? There's a greenhouse effect. Yes. So, so we think that Venus was probably had oceans. Um, maybe, you know, a couple of billion years ago, not, not, you know, not just after it formed, but maybe for quite some time. Um, it's covered in volcanoes. Um, and what we think is there was a runaway greenhouse effect that turned it from something that could have supported water to something mm -hmm. that now it will melt lead. So the greenhouse effect does that. Yeah. Um, um, climate change. I mean, I just think, <laughs> yeah. Uh, 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 yeah, if there was ever an example, is there any way to 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 closer examine Venus then, given those kind of, I, mean, I don't yeah, know if there's a material. The Russians mm -hmm. landed on it. When did the, they? The Russians landed on it wow. in the 80s. Wow. Yeah, yeah. so the, the, the Russians have made, I think, at least two successful landings they didn't last very long but they took pictures um, and also we have there's a there's a spacecraft i think there's one called miguel and there, there are various spacecraft up there or have been in orbit around venus that use radar to map the surface so we, we have maps of venus we've seen the volcanoes by bouncing radar off them the thing is it's always shrouded in cloud though so you never see anything uh, in in optical light you know when you take a right. picture of venus it's just right um a cloudy thing which which even in the 50s you know i've got these books by um people like patrick moore so real, real astronomers who used to speculate that there might be life on venus in the 40s mm. 30s right it was it wasn't until we had radio telescopes that we could see that it was hot because mm -hmm. again it's one of those questions it's a simple question isn't it? how do you know if you've never been yeah. there how do you know how do you and, know uh, yeah so 
But you, well, you can you see said, it from what it radiates. You know, so if you've got a radio telescope, you can see the radiation coming off it. Yeah. And you go, oh, it's hot. Right. You said there are 20 billion Earth-like planets. Here there. we go. I Here we it. go. Here we go. This is it. Here we go. <laughs> All right. It's getting a bit lofty. But uh, 20 billion Earth-like planets. Why are we on this one? And surely there, there must be another Jax Jones somewhere out there in the universe. <laughs> Well, yeah, I and mean, that's just in the Milky Way, by the way. Okay, no. I mean, we're saying, we're saying 20 billion in the Milky Way. There are two trillion galaxies in the observable universe. It's, there's plenty of room, you're right. The, what's interesting is when you talk to astronomers, you say, well, we, think, we estimate there are 20 billion potentially Earth-like planets out there in our galaxy. Surely there must be life all over the place. Mm. And I would agree with that when you... Life, right? It's a guess because we haven't found any anywhere. But right. what we know from the history of life on earth is that mm -hmm. life began pretty much as soon as it could here on earth so we have good evidence that life was around let's say 3.8 billion years ago and the mm -hmm. earth's only four and a half billion years old so so pretty much as soon as the earth had formed and the oceans formed on the earth you see evidence of life right so that might give you a sense that the, the origin of life on a planet might have be a high prob high probability Right, given the right conditions, just because of what we see on Earth. But this is really important. Mm -hmm. If you then say, well, when did complex life appear? So not just single cells. Yeah, that's the, just the key slime, definition here. Yeah. But stuff <laughs> that can, you know, animals and plants and things yes. that can think and make podcasts, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> then Thanks for putting me in the complex category. The evidence, <laughs> yeah. The evidence of complex multicellular mm -hmm. uh, living things on earth goes back let's say 600 million years or so not much further than that so it's within the last billion so it for, on earth what happened was that there were single cells things doing interesting stuff photosynthesis and things but from for, for let's say three billion years from the origin of life nothing else not much going on. Slime mm, mm, for three billion yeah. years. And yeah. only in the last billion, uh, half a billion-ish, right, do you see complex life. So it took about, well, around a third of the age of the universe on Earth to go from the origin of life to a civilization. That's mm. a very long time. Yes. And what you're asking is you're asking that the star was stable and didn't run out of fuel and the the orbit of the planet was stable it didn't get hit by too many asteroids it didn't another planet didn't Whoa. hit it during the time yeah. you know all those things so it, i think that if you if you start asking for stability on mm -hmm. these exoplanets uh, for billions of years if that's what it takes typically to go from the origin of life to something that can think mm -hmm. then there may be very few places indeed where you that lowers the life. odds significantly. That's, that's a guess. Yes. Right? Yeah. It's an educated guess. That's my view, though. And I think yeah. that most biologists I speak to tend to take that view. Most, not all, but most. Okay. So biologists are much more pessimistic, I find, when it comes to complex life than astronomers. Uh, because they know how what, what a tortuous path it was from right. from the origin of life to us. There's a thing called the eukaryotic cell, right, which is what we're made of. And every complex living thing on the planet is made of. Every plant, every blade of grass, every insect, everything mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. made of these eukaryotic cells. And the other ones called prokaryotes, which are bacteria and things like that. 
the eukaryotes, it looks like those things evolved once on this planet. And it looks like what happened is one type of more primitive cell called mm -hmm. a, a, a bacteria in this case, got inside another kind of cell called an archaea, which mm -hmm. is still around now, single cell, got inside and didn't die and somehow managed to multiply like that. Well, right. Yeah. It, yeah. It, and it looks like that happened once. And it looks like that's the origin of all complex life on Earth. Oh, fascinating. That is amazing. When you see things like that, which yeah. probably happened about, what, two billion years ago or something in some primordial right. ocean, you think, well, what are the chances? You know, when you start seeing the things that had to happen to make us, you start to think that this place may be extremely special. And you can make the argument, and I do actually, I think it's very important politically as well, that, that this could be the only planet in our galaxy currently that has anything on it that can think. And your question, your first question, you talked about meaning in the universe. Yeah. Right? Meaning, what is it? It exists because the universe means something to us. So it would be ridiculous to say that we, we don't live in a meaningless universe because meaning self-evidently exists because we exist. Right. Right. It's a property of us, I would argue. It's a property of human brains property of thought, consciousness, if we are the only planet currently in the Milky Way where brains exist, where conscious thought exists, we are the only place where meaning exists in a galaxy of 400 billion stars. Now that, I think, is a good working hypothesis. You then ask yourself, should we be treating ourselves and our planet the way that we are? Because we yeah. are indescribably valuable. <laughs> in that case, yeah. not not notwithstanding our physical insignificance, it would yeah. be astonishing. Imagine if we decide to press the button tomorrow, nuclear war, right? We press the button. You, the person who does that, might wipe out meaning in a galaxy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean, that's a very real possibility. Th thanks for kicking a football the size of the universe into my goal. I mean, what you're saying is it's the <laughs> ultimate. It's the ultimate sacrifice or the ultimate loss, but it is based on the principle that you sh that you hold or the opinion you hold that actually it's an arduous journey that we've travelled to complex life. It, yeah, how yeah, how well do you think that is informed? Is that is that in your mind good evidence that actually to get to where we are as complex humans, um, it is a, it is not only you know a couple of billion years. But you've got to survive the odds of traffic. They might be called meteor. It might be a meteor strike, asteroids, and whatever. Well, we, we have. You're right to point it out. We have a sample size of one, in the technical jargon, which is mm -hmm. Earth. Yes. We can say on Earth, that's what happened, right? We know that we are related to all living things on the planet. We know there's an unbroken chain of life that stretches back 3.8 billion years, to. Mm -hmm something probably around a vent system in a primordial ocean so right. we know that so we we've not seen anywhere else so you know you it might be that that was unusual that we were just unlucky we, we didn't it took a long time on this planet and that's not the way of things or it might be that we're on the lucky side mm -hmm. uh, we just don't mm -hmm. know so but all i think that if asked to you know form a view all we can do as you know in, in your industry all you can do is look at the data that you have. You Absolutely. can't invent anything. And we, we, yeah. own, we have this data. So we'll yes. extrapolate from that until we have yeah. some more. So you believe then, let, let, let's, put, let's put it out there, that you believe that it's probably 
quite unlikely in the Milky Way and perhaps beyond that there's complex life that we could be pretty damn special. Yeah, okay. that's my guess. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I think that's a really, yeah. I think that's a really on, on, honest answer. Um, and but do you therefore believe that if we take the word complex out, that you know microbes, you know other kind kind of molecular structures, things that aren't that don't necessarily do much thinking, but are happily living somewhere else on a planet, that that is probably in abundance in this gal- yeah. in the, in this Again, universe. That would be my guess. Again, just based on the observation that life began pretty much as soon as it could here. And life, you know, I mean, it's quite hard to define life, actually. But it's, you know, some it's something, it is chemistry. It, all it is is chemistry. But it's chemistry that can pass information on, so it can replicate, pass information on. And, and that, you know, seems to have happened here quite early. So that's, that's what you can yeah. say. So I think this leads to another important question. Let's just, let's just squash this myth. Um, you, you know, do you believe that... Um, that we're going to be visited by a UFO and that, that um, <laughs> we're not sure where it's coming from, but, but, you know, it definitely doesn't belong in our orbit. No, I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I always say this, you know, because... Oh, oh, hold up. No, I wouldn't be surprised because the thing is, like we said, the flip side of this is there are loads of planets out there and there's been loads of time. This, this has got a name, actually. It's called the Fermi Paradox after someone called Enrico Fermi, a great Italian physicist who asked this very simple question, which is, where are they? Because given the number of planets, given the number of stars, and given the amount of time Mm -hmm. that has been in this galaxy for life to emerge, it seems as if at least a few civilizations should have become into into stellar civilizations. But what you did was made it small. You made the odds even smaller, or larger, sorry, because of the the nature of a single event. Do you mean that? Yeah, so, so part of the evidence... Part of the great conundrum here is that, so on, on the one side, yes, we've got the history of life on Earth, which says that we took a long time to emerge. And so it looked quite like an unlikely process. On the other side, you've got all this real estate, which we're discovering every day, all right. these places where life could emerge. Right. And you have this, so if you think about where we could go, what could we become as a civilization? So already we, we've got, you know what spacex are doing i think today they're launching two falcon nines aren't they you've got reusable rockets we are becoming a a spacefaring civilization now very quickly so give us you know it's not it's a hundred years ago that the wright brothers (laughs) flew for the first time Uh, 60 years after that we went to the moon and now we're becoming a true spacefaring civilization give us a thousand years Mm -hmm. give us a thousand years when we don't destroy ourselves or do anything stupid I'm sure we're going to be on Mars, we're going to be on the moon, we're going to be thinking about perhaps Uh taking our first steps out to the stars. Give us a million years, one million from now, if we survive, we should Mm -hmm. be an interstellar civilization. So we should be the ones that are going out into the galaxy. You would think that. There's nothing in the laws Mm -hmm. of physics that says you can't do it. Now, one million years, the galaxy has been around for the age of the universe, 12, 13 billion years. So it only takes a few civilizations to have evolved a bit ahead of us. A million years. Give it, let's say, 10, let's say a billion years. A billion years, it's still nothing. You you get some civilizations that evolved a billion years before us. Why are they not there? Why can't we see them? Maybe they they finished already. 
Well, exactly. So, and and then you, so then people start saying, well, maybe there's a finite life that all civilizations have. Maybe they destroy themselves. Maybe they maybe they don't become spacefaring civilizations. See Elon Musk's argument, right? When you ask him why do you want to go to Mars, he says because I don't want the human race to destroy itself. Yes, so it's his yes, central yes, argument. So he argues wanna, that the patterns, I must guarantee, right? Like it's like it, it well, will happen to, if we stay here. Yeah, not have all our eggs in one basket, right? He wants <laughs> yeah, to. He, he, wanted, <laughs> but, he, but he likes it, to colonize, right? I mean, at the end of the day, we colonize another planet. Uh, because we feel safer in that colony, right? Well, there's because... two rather than one. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, and so, but so it's it's an absolutely fascinating question. The Fermi par- it's called the Fermi paradox, mm-hmm. because it is a paradox. You would knowing nothing else, you accept what we know about the size and scale of the universe, or, or the galaxy. Confine it to the galaxy, because gal- other galaxies are a long way away. But what we know is that you would expect. I, you might expect it to be crawling with civilizations, mm-hmm. right? The fact that we don't see any is a paradox. And a potential answer to that that makes sense to me is the biology. That it's just very unlikely that you get complex living things. This is all opinion, right? Mm-hmm. So, but it's sure. really interesting to think about it. Because you, you can make a very strong argument that we should see the thing. It should be like Star Wars. Right, it should be crawling sure. with things. What could we? We don't want to wait a thousand years or even a million years because I get where you, I, I get where that kind of endpoint might be. That the longer we go, we might end up. It might end up being cowboys and Indians in space or Star Wars. Right, this yeah. idea that we're living on ships instead, mm-hmm. um, or the idea that we go to create different colonies, like I think the film Passenger, and we've got all our plant life in one of the rooms and everything. That's fascinating. But what could we get? Do you think? in your lifetime, we're similar age, or our kids' lifetime from space? What would you hope to get? I think we'll, we'll, we'll have a permanent presence on the moon pretty soon, and Mars within our lifetime. I don't think it's, I, wow. my guess is it's not the SpaceX timescale. I think it, I, I imagine it's more 20, 30, 40 years, but I, I could be wrong. I mean, the, the key point from an aerospace perspective, as you'll, you'll know, is that, is reusable rockets yeah because you know i i remember i've had the pleasure of speaking to um I, i've spoken to all three of those people actually elon musk jeff bezos and richard branson who are the mm-hmm. three leading entrepreneurs i suppose i think it was jeff bezos who said imagine that we set off let's say we're going to fly from london to new york and you fly to new york and you get off the plane in new york and then you blow it up <laughs> right one use single use 747s <laughs> right. or 777s or whatever <laughs> then how expensive is that ticket and that's what obviously we've always done we don't do that anymore right we we now have low cost low cost reliable access to near earth orbit near earth orbit is already industrialized it's already a, a extremely lucrative area to do business in there are communication satellites you know geological satellites that look for raw materials weather forecast everything so it's already industrialized and now it can be the Jeff Bezos, he said an interesting thing, actually. Um, He said, if you think about Amazon, what I needed to make Amazon was two pieces of infrastructure, the postal service and the Internet. Given that an entrepreneur could move in from his garage initially and build one of the world's largest companies Um, in space, it'll be the same. So so now you have the infrastructure in orbit. You have the possibility of refueling satellites on orbit, easy access up and down. The entrepreneurs can move in. 
and they will industrialize that and that will then spread to the moon and ultimately in decades to mars and and, and onwards so so i think we'll see all that in our lifetime certainly the routine use of near-earth orbit i think that's coming in a decade is that okay can i circle round on that like is that is you know we talking about global warming a bit in in this conversation and that's due to our productivity you know our, like where we're producing and taking up resource is that okay us then going to another planet and continuing the same process almost yeah i think it's better isn't it <laughs> i mean uh, well like, as, do we, uh, I mean, do we again, just chill like do we just chill you like, know what would you like to do you'd like to zone the earth in uh, zone the earth residential love to do that because this is the best planet we know of anywhere in the universe. It, obviously, mm -hmm. there's a selection effect. We evolved on it. It is we are made for it. Mm -hmm. right? So it's the best place for us. But if you want to do heavy industry, ultimately, then you, who cares? Stick it on Mars. But I mean, yeah. you know, if it's just a rock, yeah, you can concrete over the thing, turn it into a parking lot. Who cares? <laughs> yeah. But I think the, I'm kind of being facetious. It's a beautiful place. We don't want to wreck it. But then again, what's the I said earlier that I thought that we bring meaning to the local universe. Mm -hmm. So that means to me that the rest of the universe is there. I don't have any problem with going mining asteroids or digging up digging up Mars for raw materials or digging up the why why would anyone have a problem with that the most remarkable thing that exists in the universe that we know of is us and we've got to come totally. to terms with yeah, that we, we can't keep thinking that you know you hear people sometimes say the world will be better off without us that's bollocks yeah totally <laughs> agree. the world yeah. would not be better off without us the world yeah. would then be like every other world yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. The, there are billions of these rocks yeah what I'm arguing is there might be very few with yeah. um, with, with with meaning on them. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. I can't sit on this call uh, talking to the great Brian Cox and not bring up D-Ream. Like, uh, you know, we were ta we were talking about it prior when before we kicked off about, you know, your extensive keyboard collections and what keyboards you're using and stuff. And I just find it fascinating that you're uh, had... had significant success in music and it's still i get the impression it still plays a part in what you do today because of your re the shows yeah. you're putting on it's got big musical production right and and then you're an acclaimed incredible physicist it's like wow what makes brian cox tick i didn't have lessons or anything so i, I didn't you know growing up that we weren't a musical household so i got into it through linking to music and it was i remember because i was born in 68 so i'm a bit older than you and mm. um i I got into sort of the early electronic bands. So I was a bit geeky. So I was into, I got into Kraftwerk and then the OMD's first album, nice, Ultravox yeah. and those things. And I liked that music and liked that technology. And, and so I formed a band with a friend of mine. You know, we were trying, in those days, you had to build bits of electronic kit. You know, you couldn't buy mm -hmm. it. I mean, there were no computers, right? You couldn't get them. You had a ZX81 or something with 1K. <laughs> so. <laughs> So I, so I remember that. building things with it, like we built a noise gate school because we had a drum machine and we had a, an elect an organ, one of those electric organ things. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to make polyphonic triggers like uh, like Ultravox do. Like digging yeah, yeah, mad. And so we, we made a noise gate with soldering irons and everything and, and triggered it off the hi-hat of the drum machine. And then you could put the cord into it and make it trigger. So it was all that kind of DIY electronic music and then and then i thought i'll te i better teach myself how to play something so I, I started with a mono synth and just started trying to play keyboards 
and to this day i've never had a lesson so i don't mm-hmm. know how to read music or anything like that i can read chords and then um my dad was in the pub the local pub and um darren wharton who is a keyboard player from thin lizzie mm-hmm. was in the pub and he'd moved in close to us in, in oldham and um so he gave darren the demo tape that we'd made when we were 14 or something which is of course whatever it was very good but he remembered when he was putting a band together after lizzie split up that there was a keyboard player up the road and asked me to go and <laughs> audition and what i could do by that point was program stuff mm-hmm. so he needed he needed a programmer as well so i got in so i joined this band with him we got a record deal with a m records this is late 80s loads of money around you know at the time ended up in los angeles recorded an album in Joni Mitchell's house, actually, with, with Joni Mitchell's, uh, with That's Larry amazing. Klein, who's a great bass player, who was Joni, married to Joni Mitchell at the time. Then toured with Jimmy Page and Gary Moore and Europe, ultimately, the band Europe. And so I had this career with a rock band, left that band because we had a fight, literally, in, in <laughs> yeah. a bar in Berlin, uh, applied to go to university. Um, and then during the time I was applying to go to university, I needed a job. And mm-hmm. I became a sound engineer. And a friend of mine, a really good friend of mine, had got this band who didn't have a deal called D-Ream. And said, uh, the, uh, and he hated it, right? He hated that kind of music. He was a rock and roll kind of roadie. And, uh, and so he said, well, you do it. You just drive them around in a car. They, they've got a DAT player and a mic. And go to the clubs and set them up and just do it. And you, you'll get 50 quid or whatever. And that's it. <laughs> and it'll keep you going to go to university. And then D-Ream got a deal. Mm-hmm. and didn't have a keyboard player for some tv show that they were doing so they said oh you can do that can't you just you can you just stand there and, and play the keyboards so I, so i ended up i ended up accidentally joining d-ream while while i, while I was at university basically on, on it's the way to so university. cool so that's what happened can we bring all those worlds together for you and create i the basically the most exciting proposition you've ever heard in that you're about to hear in 2021 here we go here we go so can we do the 2021 equivalent of Baz Luhrmann's sunscreen, but with Brian Cox talking about the future, a futurist monologue, and I just put some music to it, put it into the world. I think that's a knocker, if you ask me. Absolutely, <laughs> I'm totally, I'm totally up for that. Yeah, that'll be so sick. By the way, Brian, that's a great, that that truly is a great offer. Dude, it's your birthday. Let's just let all the people know that it's your birthday. <laughs> okay. Everyone sing it with me now. Happy birthday to you. I can't hear anyone. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to Martin. Happy birthday to you. Hey. Happy Thank birthday, you. Big man. That was actually really sweet. And, and the harmony was nice as well. It was, it was, that, was, that, was, that was cute. <laughs> I was going to say, it's my, my first time I've heard it today, and it will probably be my last. And it's on a podcast, and it's with my great friend. I, you know, I'm happy. Listen, I'm sad that we aren't in the same room right now. For those of you who uh, didn't know, we are shooting. We're doing this podcast on Zoom. We're not united in the person. And it's also, you were kind of cluing me into this has a meaningful day. Obviously, the best birthday present is that you recorded your podcast today with Brian Cox, yeah. what a guy. Awesome, right? Awesome. And which brings us to the thought of the day, which is usually where we give something where you and I, something that we've been mm-hmm. thinking about. And I think it's only right that we talk about something that's a special day because it's your birthday, but also highly emotional uh, because it's the anniversary of your 
father's yeah. burial is yeah. his funeral yeah. today of all days yeah. is today you guys um, Martin asked me if he, to prepare a song he there's a song that means a lot to him and his dad and then I've gone away and learned it is Cat Stevens father and son yeah. why is this song special to you bro well one of the things that connects me to my father's memory is music he introduced me to a broad range of, of, of music and I credit him with my desire to listen to different genres but in particular Cat Stevens is a favorite because it was my father's favorite and I grew up listening to his songs and in particular father and son and when I hear it it just reminds me of my father and it's impossible to not draw references to the relationship between the father and son this when you came up with the idea of performing it in tribute to your dad which is what we're about to do guys uh, Martin's about to make his first public singing performance in years I, like I, I, yeah I was up um learning this record this morning at 5 a.m I'm so appreciative <laughs> we well let's do it man I think let, look, let's just do it let's pay a tribute to your dad let's that do it wonderful It's not time to make a change Just relax, take it easy You're still young, that's your fault There's so much you have to know Find a girl, settle down If you want, you can marry Look at me, I am old, but I'm happy I was once like you are now And I know that's not easy To be calm When you found something going on But take your time Think a lot Think of everything you've got For you will still be here tomorrow But your dreams may not How can I try to explain When I do, he turns away again It's always been the same Same old story From the moment I could talk I was ordered to listen Now there's a way And I know That I have to go away I know I have to go. Hey, thanks for listening to the Jax Jones and Martin Warner Show. We value your feedback, so please leave comments below or head to our website, www.jaxandmartinshow.com to get in touch with us. And there you'll also find a ton of stuff about Professor Brian Cox, his book recommendations, the books he's written, his live shows, and much more about space. We videoed all of this as well, so head to our YouTube for that. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast and we'll see you next time. Love you.